0: Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We, uh, we thank you, uh, Lord, for this wonderful gospel of Matthew that we have been uh, working through for a couple years now. Lord, as we enter into this Passion Week, Father, help us not to lose sight of uh, the context. Um, everything that we're studying in the next couple months is happening days from Jesus' arrest, uh, his crucifixion, and ultimately his resurrection. Lord, we thank you uh, for what Christ did on our behalf. We thank you for uh, the grace that you've imparted to us. We thank you, Lord, that salvation is not by our works, but that you have um, offered it to us freely. Uh, As we saw the wedding banquet last week, Lord, we ask that you would help us to respond to your gracious invitation, your wonderful gift. Uh, Father, may we uh, continue uh, to offer you our lives. Father, for those of us who don't know you, Lord, I ask that you would Lord, that you would continue by your spirit to uh, reveal to them the truths that you've given to us. Uh, this concept of grace is an amazing thing that is, it's hard to wrap our minds around. And so, Lord, we thank you that you're a kind, loving, and benevolent God. Father, we pray that your spirit would lead us this day as we study your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful, and teach the way of God in truth, and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a pull tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar... The thing that are the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Our Lord, we ask that you would guide us now, in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we find ourselves. We're pretty confident that this is Tuesday before the crucifixion. Uh, the triumphal entry, where Jesus entered on on the colt, uh, the the uh, as he goes down the Mount of, Olives, all of it, the the Mount of Olives, um, the what's referred to as a triumphal entry would have happened Sunday afternoon. Monday he's in the temple, he's uh, kicked over the money exchangers tables, he sees the corruptions, he challenges them all, he leaves, uh, going to Mary and Martha's home in Bethany, which was about a mile away. He returned the next morning on Monday. Uh, He sees the fig tree. He curses the fig tree because it showed all signs that it should have fruit. It had big leaves. It should have had something edible. And Jesus curses this fig tree. And this fig tree sort of is the overarching uh, image, uh, the object lesson, sort of throughout this whole time at the temple. Uh, Jesus was there teaching. Uh, He's confronted by the leaders the uh, the the elders and the priest asking by whose authority was he teaching and so Jesus asked them a question he says well if you tell me by whose authority was John the Baptist teaching i'll answer you, your I'll answer your question and so they have this sort of exchange amongst themselves they realize if they say that John's authority was from God um, they would have some problems because in saying that they would have to concede that Jesus was indeed the Messiah because that was the whole purpose of John the Baptist's ministry. But if they were to say that John, that his authority was from man, they would have had a huge revolt on their hands because the people uh, believed that John the Baptist was a prophet of God, as the scriptures recall. Uh, His, uh, interesting, recently I just learned that in Erdashim, Erdashim, he's this uh, Jewish man. He wrote an amazing commentary sort of on the life and times of Jesus. And he went through historically, and his, he suggests that the year that John the Baptist had his ministry, it was a Sabbath year. So all of the people were available to go hear his message, which would further highlight like the widespread um, knowledge about the things that he did and the people's availability to be baptized in repentance. And so for, so for the, for the leaders to say, no, he's just a man. He just made this up on his own authority. They, there would have been a public outcry and so they were in a pickle and so they said we can't answer your question Jesus says well, if you can't answer my question, then i'm not going to answer your question And from that jesus goes to share three parables that we've already looked at and the essence of these three parables Basically show that the religious leaders and israel were presently rejecting god and they would be condemned as that fig tree was And so we enter our story today um, this story is the beginning of, of a series of attacks by the religious leaders. There are three of them. There were, there's uh, the pull tax, there's um, dealing with marriage by the Pharisees or the Sadducees coming up next, and then there's the issue of what is the greatest commandment of all. So they're sort of, we're entering into this tidal wave of attacks by the leaders against Jesus uh, to try to trap Jesus. Uh, today's attack is, is so relevant and is something that we should all really consider um, that I decided to just sort of isolate this one attack. Um, it's a critical issue that's at hand. And the question that they ask is broader than this whole pool tax. The The issue at, at hand is, how does the follower of Christ relate to the government that is over it? You know, this week there's been a whole lot of uh, brouhaha in the news. Uh, there was a football game on Thursday. The Chargers um, played the 49ers, and there was one individual who uh, is doing a little something about re- refusing to stand for the national anthem. Um, so I don't really want to, I don't really want to discuss that so much. But the issue of do, do we as Christians stand for the national anthem? Why or why not? Do we pay our taxes? On what day was it? This week has been a blur. On I think it was Tuesday, or maybe Monday. I think it was Tuesday. We had to submit ourselves as a church to the fire department for a fire inspection. Do we, as a church say no, go away We, we stand for God only, or do we submit ourselves um, to the authorities over these These are all very critical questions that the Bible addresses. Um, how do we relate to to the government that's, that, or the authorities that have been appointed over us? Um, and so we enter into verse fifteen. now sort of the backdrop we learn. Then the Pharisees, they went and plotted together how they might trap him. That's Jesus and what he said. So here we're introduced to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were one of the controlling parties. There were there were two there were two main sects within uh, Judaism. R- really, there were three, possibly more, but the other ones were were so low on the ranking order. The Pharisees were uh, large in number. They sort of represented the Uh, the the blue-collar man. They they represented the average um, uh, Jewish person. They were more conservative in nature. They believed that the Word of God was the Word of God. They believed in miracles. They believed that God's hand was working. And and the things that that were recorded in the scriptures, they believed it to be true. Um, Then we have the Sadducees, who were going to Uh, Be introduced to next week. They were sort of the aristocrats. They were sort of the the liberals of their day. They did not believe in miracles. They did not believe that the things uh, that the scriptures said were miraculous were actually true. They only held to really the first five books of the Bible, and they were very, very wealthy. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees um, sort of would work together because they have a mutual enemy. And so here are the Pharisees, they're coming up with a plan to trap Jesus in sort of his own words. This word for trap is is literally, you know, think of the things that, well, I've never actually used one. I've only seen them on Little House on the Prairie. Uh, you know, like the bear traps that you open and then the animal steps in it, it clamps its, its claw. That, that's the word that's used here. This is a total trap. They're trying to trick Jesus uh, for the sake of, of having him say something that he's going to stumble upon. They're trying to do the very thing that he did to them previously with the question concerning John the Baptist. Now, if you want to trick me, that's very easy to do. If you go to a a midweek Bible study that I lead, I don't do a lot of homework for those. My plan is to try to get discussion. And there's a lot of times at the midweek Bible study where somebody asks a question that's like, way out in left field that i had like no idea that was coming i like i don't know the answer to that one can you get back to me like i or if you were to put somebody that was really sneaky trying to pin me into a corner like you could probably pin me into a corner pretty easily but i'm not jesus and so they're going to learn by by the end of this story they're going to walk away amazed Uh, throughout the gospels when jesus taught when he uh confronted people people just were left sort of dumbfounded with his wisdom um And it's so hard for for my brain to wrap around. How did they they get confronted to this level and not submit and believe and follow him? But the condition of the human heart is such that it's actually really easy to reject overwhelming evidence uh, that God gives to us. And so here is this plot. They're trying to trap Jesus in his words. And they have a plan that they've formulated. Verse 16, they sent their disciples. This is like one of the only places that we learned that the Pharisees had disciples. Um, They're not often mentioned. The Pharisees already have a reputation with Jesus. And so you have to, these guys are weaselly little guys. Um, They stand behind all of their power and all their stuff. They think, well, if we go there, sort of confront Jesus sort of man to man, he'll know that we're behind it. So and he won't even play ball with us. So what we're gonna do is, We're going to get our little minions together, and we're going to sort of come up with a plan for them, and we're going to send them off to Jesus because Jesus will be blindsided by it. He'll never suspect that these guys are connected to us. And then we're introduced to another group of people. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, we don't know much about the Herodians um, historically. However, their name sheds a lot of insight. There was the Herod the Great, the, this this dynasty, evil, wicked family. We learned about them uh, earlier in Matthew. This family was the Jerry Springer show on steroids. They were a total mess. I mean, sleeping with everybody, murdering everybody. Um, they, they said it was safer to be a dog in Herod's family than to be one of his family members. I mean, they they, they were ruthless. Then eventually Herod the Great divided the kingdom amongst his sons. and And so we know that, herod he ruled up in the galilee region which is not just limited to the sea of galilee it's the whole sort of northern region of israel there was no herod ruling in the south where the story takes place in the region of judea Um, by their name we're able to sort of deduce they stood um, for king herod to stand for king herod meant that you stood with rome it was rome that sort of um delegated their authority to Herod and said, you're able to sort of operate and collect taxes and do all of this stuff with our endorsement, so long as you play by our rules. And so those that would be his disciples, his followers, they would stand strong um, with Israel. If we were to look at the story, you don't have to turn there, but Luke uh, gives a sort of another account of the story, sort of showing the sleaziness, this trap. This was Really well played on their part. In Luke chapter 20, verses 19 and nineteen and 20, we read, The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him, that's Jesus, the very hour. And they feared the people, for they understood that he, that's Jesus, spoke this parable against them. Just the last few parables that we've looked at. So they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement, so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. So this is a big plot. The Pharisees are sort of standing in the shadows in the background. Well, if we send our disciples, we send the Herodians. Now, now to further understand this between these two groups, I've, uh, th- these two groups, they hated one another. See, the Pharisees, in their mind, they had pledged exclusive allegiance to God and zero allegiance to the Roman government. They hated the Roman government. There was nothing more vile to them than the Roman authorities. Now, the Herodians were all the way on the other side of the pendulum. They had no allegiance to God, and they pledged full 100% support towards Rome, totally and completely. D.A. Carson, on this point, he says, a common enemy makes for strange bedfellows. So this is very uh, unusual that they would work together, but but Jesus threatened both of them. And so they could come together for the purpose of trying to condemn Jesus. And so they're going to go and they're going to have this encounter with Jesus. They go on their way. Uh, we continue. Um, midway through verse 16, the Pharisees had sent their disciples along with the Herodians. They now are in the midst of Jesus And they say to Jesus, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial uh, to any. This is smoothing at its finest. They walk up to him. We just think you're great. We know that uh, as it relates to the things of God, you are truthful. You cannot lie. You will not lie. You don't care about what people think about you. That's not to say he didn't care about people but his answer, he was not swayed by the populist like they were. They made their actions based on how would man react. It was a total political system for them. For them to say that John the Baptist was of man, which was what they believed, they recognized that all of their power and the people would go down because the people would be totally upset. But they say, well, Jesus, you're not like that. Um, there, there's, there's essentially four compliments here. They're totally smoozing him. They're, oh, you're just the greatest teacher ever. ever. And and the irony of it all, because if they actually believed what they said, they wouldn't be trying to trap Jesus. They would be following after him and humbling themselves before him. And so they, as they've smoothed him, they've applauded him for his wonderful leadership, his wonderful teaching, his great ethic, his great wisdom. Uh, really, he's the greatest thing since sliced bread to them. I don't think they had slice. I don't know whether there's always been sliced bread as long as there's been bread. Um, so that he's just wonderful. And so they say, tell us, what do you think? We have a question for you. We're torn here. Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Um, th- this, really, this is an explosive, explosive question that they're asking. Um, th- this was the most heinous of all the taxes that Rome placed on the Jews. This is—it's a poll tax. It's other places referred to as a census. This was a tax for basically living under the kingdom of Rome. Uh, if you are a Roman citizen, you were exempt from this tax. This is the very tax that Mary and Joseph remember when Mary gets pregnant. They had to go down to Jerusalem or to, to, to Bethlehem to, for their poll tax. This is the very tax that they had to pay. This tax. Uh, was revolted upon time after time after time again. Eventually, the revolt got so strong that in AD 66, there was a revolt that that basically, because of this tax, led to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. This is what Nero came to Jerusalem to show them, if you're not going to submit to us, if you're not going to pay your homage, if you're not going to worship me as your Lord, that I'm going to destroy your little city. So this tax was hated by the Jews. The, the people who'd led the insurrection in the past, um, the prior to this uh, time that Jesus was being spoken to, the man that led the insurrection was out of the Galilee region. And so coming to Jesus, this rabbi from Galilee, uh, there seemed to be some, oh, we got him good. Because there's, there's nothing, there's great tension here. So if Jesus was to answer to them, it's not religiously legal. It's not permitted in the Torah for Jews to pay this tax. Um, there, would be a, there would immediately be, by the Herodians, that's blasphemy against Caesar. They would have immediately hauled Jesus to the Roman authorities and Jesus would be crucified. And basically both sides, they would have accomplished what they wanted to get rid of Jesus. Now, if Jesus says, pay the, pay the stupid tax, guys, you've got to pay the tax. Like, yes, Rome is over us. Pay, pay your drachma. The drachma wasn't a big deal. This was, th- this was equivalent to a day labor's one-day wage. And as far as taxes, it, was, it wasn't that big of a deal financially. It was everything behind it which made it such a big deal. And so if he said, pay the tax, all of the Jews... The populace, Jesus' all of them during this time during the Passover, there would have been a huge revolt because there is no way the Messiah would come rolling in during Passover and saying, Humble yourselves, submit yourselves, worship Caesar as God, and pay the tax because that's equivalent of what they're saying. So if Jesus says, Don't pay the tax, or if he says, Pay the tax, like there's, if he says, Don't pay the tax, the Herodians are mad. If he says, Paid the tax, then all of the Jews, not just the Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't have to be a part of that because for them to say, for him to say pay the tax, the Jews, there would have been a huge, huge outcry. Um, They think they have him in a in a in a pickle. They ask their question. In some ways it's a legitimate question. I don't think that they're asking it in a legitimate way. But from a biblical perspective, from a Christian worldview. The reality is, is like what, how, where's the line as far as submitting to the government? What's our role in our relationship with the government that's over us? H- how, do we, how do we handle this? And so then Jesus in verse 18, we're told that he perceived their malice. Of course, he's omniscient. He's God. You're not going to slide one sort of past Jesus like, oh, we didn't see, well, he didn't see that coming. He sees their malice, he sees their true intention and he says to them, "Why?" Like, why are you doing this? Like, why are you testing me in this way? You're a bunch of hypocrites. Now, now hypocrite is the word for actor. It's literally that you put on this appearance and and, and you're acting to be one thing, but behind the scenes you're you're a totally different character. When you when you talk to actors that are really good, um not talk to them. <laughs> I don't talk to actors, so let's. Uh... But I've seen on TV, like, actors who become their character to the point where they lose their own identity and it drives them crazy. I've already mentioned Little House on the Prairie. But Laura Ingalls, I don't even know what her real name is, you know? Like, uh, I do. It's, it's Melissa Gilbert, but I don't have to, Like you know, I... <laughs> we like Little House on the Prairie in our family. But Melissa Gilbert, that is Laura Ingalls. And so, this, like, we're, we're this duplicity. Laura Ingalls on TV is not really Laura Ingalls. Melissa Gilbert is a totally different, or maybe I'm getting the names wrong. Am I right or wrong? Am I, I'm right, okay. Yeah. I can get my facts about Little House on the Prairie, but when it comes to the king and queen, I'm way off on that stuff. You know, that's a, um, So Jesus totally confronts him. Why are you doing this? Why are you trying to pretend to be uh, appreciative of my teaching and my leading? This is you, you guys are hypocrites. And so then Jesus says in verse 19, show me the coin used for the pull tax. And they brought him a denarius. Now, I'm not quite sure when this coin behind me was minted. um, But the coin is a big deal. So on the coin, there was a picture of Caesar. On our money, we have pictures of a bunch of people. Our people are a bunch of dead people, right? So our people are people that, that have had historical influence in the United States that we want to reflect upon. There's no you know americans we tend to actually worship the dollar bill not the actual the image on the dollar bill Um, this was the image of the present caesar and inscribed on the coin it was literally saying that he was god and this poll tax was so heinous to the jews because you had to use their coins the jews were allowed to have their own copper coins that they used amongst their own co- commerce because to have a graven image broke one of the commandments. And this word that Jesus says in verse 20, when he says, whose likeness, the word is literally image. Who is it? Whose image is on the coin? Whose graven image is this? He asks a simple question, and they say, it's Caesar's. And so for the Jews, if you wanted to pay this pull tax, you couldn't use your copper coins. You couldn't use the coins that, that you weren't offended by. The, the coins had no graven image of anybody. And it certainly did not have the image of a, of a present-day ruler who basically, by paying that tax, you were bowing down before him and saying, You are Lord, you are God, and I worship you. And so Jesus says, let me see this coin. Now, now there's, a couple different, um, there's a couple different takes. Um, some say, well, they had, to, they, they had to go find a coin. But the majority of people say that, no, they had these coins readily on them. And one commentary, um, the, the New International Commentary, I believe, the Nick Commentary, uh, they write, and, and, and Jesus apparently did not have one. But they did. And in the holy precincts of the temple at that, well, then, if they were using the emperor's idolatrous coinage, they could hardly have objected to paying the tax. Like, if it was so easy for them to acquire one of these coins, and the fact that this coin could be found within the temple walls, they're trying to say something's blasphemy, but they're total hypocrites because they have no problems, you know, clinking the coins around in their pockets this idea of worship you know i i am um, you know i was i was raised catholic my family's catholic i i love catholics i i i i, I, I and in the news in the last 24 hours as a former catholic, there's something that's absolutely just disturbing to me that is the closest thing is that mother teresa is in the process of the termage is canonization like like being canonized, like the word like we as evangelicals would use the term canonization for the word of God exclusively, and to hear news reports that there are Catholics flocking to Rome right now, worshiping relics of hers, like they have a vial of blood of hers and they're worshiping it like a god, like it's it's disturbing to me as as a as a former Catholic, as a person who is from a Catholic family, not ripping on Catholics at all. I have a deep deep burden. Um, my roots are Catholic. But to, but to see the news and to read the paper this morning about what's going on now as a Christian, it's like, oh, how can you do this? She's just a woman who died. There's only one God, and it's Christ, and he's the only mediator. So this this is the sort of tension that is happening with these coins. And so Jesus... They have this coin. They say it's Caesar's. And I don't know if it's the same thing with the script that's on there that says Caesar, the, the God over us to render word. I should have written it down. But it, but it's totally worshiping of a living man that is Lord over you. Totally and and rightly offensive to the Jewish people. So how would Jesus respond? Like this is a huge question. How is Jesus? Like this isn't to me. This isn't just some small pickle. This is how, how is Jesus going to answer this? How would I answer? I, this is terrible. Like I... And so Jesus says, this is one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible. Uh, Render unto Caesar what's Caesar's. So at face value, um, we get what it says. We use this. Render unto Caesar. That means pay your Pay your taxes. You don't like that fire tax, render into Caesar's. Pay your tax. You gotta, you gotta do it. There's a story of a little boy <clears throat> whose parents were trying to teach him the value of tithing at church. And so they use this verse about rendering under Caesar, and you gotta do your thing and 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 about paying your taxes and giving to God and this sort of thing. And the little boy kept interrupting, Dad, Dad, like, why do we do this? Dad says, Come on, it's render under Caesar. The things that are Caesar's rendered to God. The things that are God. We got to pay our taxes. We got to do this. And the little boy said, "Dad, that's what I've been trying to tell you. Caesar's been dead for a long time. Like, like he's gone. Like, why are we?" So the issue is broader than just this. <clears throat> and sort of debating which way to tackle this, because there's there's so much more here than at first glance. If you just if you just read this as paying your taxes, which is totally a valid will point from this text, yes. But I've already identified to you the thing about the coin, and by paying that tax, you're submitting to an earthly God. And then when he says, then render, it's not just give, it's, it's, render. it's like this, you're giving, you're surrendering, you're giving what is rightly the other person's already, the things that are Caesar, and to God, the things that are God's. And so looking at this last phrase, well, what, what are the things that are God's? And the simple answer is that everything is God's, like everything is his. But if we dig under the surface to sort of get like a a biblical worldview about what Jesus is saying here, if we go back to the image question, whose image is on that coin? The question is, where's God's image stamped? And if you were to go to Genesis 127, the very opening pages of the Bible, as as Jesus, or as the, the scriptures record how things came into existence, eventually humans are created. And in Genesis 127, we read this, God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we're told at the very the very beginning of pages of the scriptures, like really the first page of the scripture, depending on how your Bible's laid out, is right away we're told, do you want to know what has God's stamp on it? Humans. We're set apart. You have God's image on you. We are set apart from all other creation because we bear the image of God. And when Satan came and and, and he sort of Disrupted God's creation by allowing sin to enter in or causing sin to enter in. He's been attack, He's been attacking this image of God that's been placed on humanity from the very beginning. And if you follow this through, there's there's too many. If you just do like a biblical word search on image, there, there's a whole lot of them, but as you sift through there, you'll see that the stamp that we as humans have on ourselves is God's stamp. Uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, 49, uh, just as we have become the image of the earthly, we also bear the image of the heavenly. So there's this picture of sin entered the world, that we've been sort of contaminated by sin, yet through Christ, we've been restored to God, we have the Spirit of God, and there's this, there's this process of growing into the Christ-likeness, growing back into His image without stain. Or wrinkle. If you were to go to Colossians 3, uh, verses 9 through 11, but just looking at verse 10 for the sake of time, there Paul writes, And have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So as you go back to Christ, in one sense, When you accept Christ as your Savior positionally in heaven, you're you're totally, you're you're positionally sanctified. But the progressive sanctification, as you accept Christ, as you go about your life, God is doing a work in you, conforming you and me to his image so that as we go through this life, uh, we become more and more like Christ. And ultimately when we die, we, the process will be complete. I'm going to Romans eight28 through 31 I'll read this, this this famous passage, all in like not really all in context, but a little bit in, like a little bit more in context. Um, so it begins at verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, and to those who love God to those who were called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become. This is the part I want you to see and to hear and to, to have it stuck into your hearts to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified. He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And so the first thing that I want us to see when when Jesus says, whose image is on that coin? Okay, that's Caesar's. We'll give give it back to Caesar. It's Caesar's. He's got his stamp on there. He has his little saying. Just give it back to him. But to the things that are God's, you render to God, you give back to God. Now what image is on God? Where has God placed his image? He's placed his image on you. So give your life to him. You're his. He created you. He formed you. He died for you. Salvation is, when we talk about being saved, this whole picture of redemption, this is somebody buying back something that's already theirs. So render the things that are God's. That's you. That's everything. Everything's God. Now, the second point that I see in this, Jesus affirms human government, even a corrupt government. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dabble in some areas that I know some of us are not going to like to hear. The government exists because it's been ordained by God. All government, even corrupt governments. I don't want to... I have this in my notes somewhere but later, but I think I want to say this up front. The context that Jesus is speaking these, render under Caesar, because we're like, oh, they were such a nice government, they were really good, and ours is like super corrupt and not good anymore. Jesus is saying this to the government, this is Tuesday, that within days, he is going to be executed as God under the authority of the Roman government, and he's saying, you render to Caesar what Caesar's this government that is over us has been ordained by God. In John nineteen eleven, when he's standing there after being beaten, bloodied to a pulp, Pontius Pilate's looking at him like, help me, help me. Don't you know who I am? I have the authority to release you or to kill you. And I always imagine Jesus is probably because of that movie. Jesus looking at him with a little, little little, smile and a sparkle in his eye and says, Pilate, don't worry about it. You have no authority except the authority that's been given to you by my Father. So even as Jesus is going to his death innocently, we see total submission on his part to this human corrupt government. Clearly, this verse has bled into all of the apostles' teachings. It's overwhelming if you go through the New Testament. I mean, it came up in Titus when Ben was teaching through Titus. It, it comes up one of the key passages I want to look at. If you'll turn with me over to Romans 13. Paul writes this, Romans 13, critical passage. This government was so corrupt, so, so vile, so evil, Nero was, at the, Nero was at, the, at the helm of Rome during this time. Like our software today, if you want to burn a CD, you, you use a software called Nero. Because his reputation for burning and killing everybody is overwhelming. That when we think, hey, what do we name our company that burns software? Oh, let's call it Nero. Like this guy was vile, horrible. Like, like we, can, in our little brains, can't even under the, the umbrella that we live in, in the United States, can't even remotely fathom the evil of this man that was under control. And look at what Paul writes, Romans thirteen one every person is to be in subjection. This is a military term to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Let that one sink in. I, I'll be honest, I can't wrap my little brain around this. All authorities, every human government, corrupt or not, we're told by the scriptures that God... Has placed these authorities into place. Therefore, verse two: Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear. It's like Paul. Don't you know who the ruler was? The time he this is Nero. This is the guy that's going to take Paul's life. Remember, what does Paul do? He appeals to who? Caesar. And what happens? Tradition holds that Paul's head was cut off. But yet he says, For rulers are not a cause for fear, for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, speaking of the authority, is a minister. This word is de- uh, the word that we get deacon from, servant, slave. the, the authorities that have been placed over you are a servant of God, the scripture says. If you, we were to go back, man, I, like I wrote my thesis on this, so I could probably spend way too much time and I'm, see where the time is. But if we were to go back to chapter 12, verse 19, it says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. And if you follow this down to verse four of chapter 13, it says this, this wrath of God is executed through the authorities that have been placed over you. Like God is the one who created capital punishment. There's nothing in the scriptures that has said, hey, guys, stop doing capital punishment. Capital punishment ultimately serves to protect the image that God has placed on his creation of people, that if you take someone's life, that life has the image of God imprinted on it. And so out of the value of human life, that's the reason the government bears the sword, and he says it doesn't do it in vain. It is a minister, verse four, a minister of God for your good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. If you were to go uh, for time's sake, I will skip over reading it. But for your for your own study, if you want to read first Peter uh, chapter two, verses 13 through 17, Peter says almost exactly the same thing throughout. The New Testament over and over and over and over and over again. The follower of Christ is called to a life of submission. And we as Americans hate it. Like hate it. Eric Alexander, this Scottish preacher, he says, and I agree with what he says. It is impossible to be a New Testament Christian and engage in civil disobedience. But there is one exception. Not that you disagree with the law. But when Caesar demands the things of God, and I have been, like, for the last, well, uh, how do I tell I'll say for whoever the president is, always I will be very respectful and only refer to the president as the president. Regardless of how I personally feel about him, I feel like my act of worship of God, that I respect the authorities over me, and so I'll say, Mr. President, I respect you as the president of our nation, but on the issues of life, the sanctity of human life, I will disagree with you and I will not agree on these points because I believe that it violates God's law. It's, it's overwhelming. Now, Stott makes a, a great point that the distinction between the, the Christian's rule. Stott says the Christians are mode of operation. We're to operate under the, the operation of love, not justice. However, the state operates on just the opposite. The state operates under justice, not love. If I read the scriptures, there's only one purpose in the government's function. The only biblical purpose that God has said that the government's role is, is to restrain evil. And if somebody does evil, the government has a God-given obligation to execute justice. Whether it's a ticket for speeding whether it's whatever the crime is, its authority is to restrain evil because humanity is terribly sinful. One thing I love about working with law enforcement is I never have to really wrestle with the whole issue of the depravity of man. Cops are very fast to tell you all people are evil and sinful and rot. Like, that's just, you learn that. Now, I want to quickly. Say a quick word to those who are in authority. What about those that are in law enforcement? What about those that are in military? What about those who find themselves in a place of authority where they are both a believer and operating under the umbrella of of, of being a believer? This, This was my thesis, So as much as I'd love to spend the next two weeks talking about this, I have about three minutes. But one passage I'll point you to is Luke chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Now the context here, we're going back to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a forerunner of Christ. He was challenging people for their sin. Uh, The scripture tells us that he was literally in the Jordan River as people would walk up he somehow must have, as a prophet, had divine knowledge to be able to confront them on their sin and publicly would, like, almost by, by our politically correct culture, he would be shaming them, calling them out for their sin. Ultimately, it's why he was executed, because he was challenging Herod for the very sin that he was doing, um, which is uh, a Jerry Springer situation. That's, that's far, like, I don't remember the math of how it all actually played out, but his wife was essentially his niece, who was, like, also his sister-in-law, Very complicated situation. Um, But so as people are coming to get baptized by him, as they're confessing their sins, as they're repenting of their deeds, as they're getting their hearts ready to receive God, in Luke chapter three, verses 10 through 14, the very first section is, we see that there are three groups of people who come to John and they have questions. Hey, now that we've repented, now that we're getting our lives right with God, what do we need to do? And so the first group is just the crowds. The crowds are questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with them who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. So this is to me, the, the Christian, this is just, the, the, or the, 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 how do we live our lives? We'll do unto others, the simple principle that Jesus taught. Now, the second group is tax collectors. Now, tax collectors are, Hated, right? Amen? We, we like, but we're supposed to submit to them as God's ministers to us. I, I did this week. I stumbled across a story of a man who was on vacation somewhere, and he witnessed a young child choking on something. So he ran over to the kid. He basically holds the kid upside down. He pops him on the back. And the mom, in tears, was like, thank you, thank you. You saved my kid. Are you a doctor? And he's like, no, no, no. I'm with the Internal Revenue Service, and I'm just really good at getting money out of people. Kind of. <laughs> it was like the joke. So, so it's probably too soon. We have a long way to go to April, but more will be coming as we get to April. But we all like, don't like tax collectors. I mean, it's, just, it's not a pleasant experience. But there are, taxer, there are tax guys who are responding. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you had been ordered to do. Well, that's exactly where they made the profit, is they had the minimum amount that they would collect, and anything that they could get in excess is what they would basically get to keep for themselves. And these guys were rich. And now we come to some soldiers, soldiers, law enforcement, military. Like, to me, this is anybody who carries a weapon for the sake of protecting and maintaining order. This This is a... powerful verse. For me as a young Navy SEAL that had become a Christian wrestling with, I just assumed that if I became a Christian, that meant I had to become a pacifist, right? Because of all of the images that I knew about Jesus, he was like a Swedish guy with a robe running down the beach, just talking about love. Like a baby was a tie-dyed robe, like, a, like a, from the 60s or 70s. And so I really had conflict. Like, what does this mean to my life? And so these soldiers, they come to John the Baptist and they say, what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. I'll never forget it. My my master's thesis sort of defense. The guy's like, this is so outdated. I'm like, do you know anybody in the military? This is like so relevant. Basically, don't take pe- money by force. Be truthful and be content with your wages. He doesn't say lay down your arms and follow Jesus. He says you can continue soldiering and policing but, as you police it you 're accountable to god, and so so there is there's far more than I can go into here and if you 've never been in this position i don 't think i 'll be able to explain it to you, but anybody who has been in this role as a military person or a soldier, you understand that when you 're acting as the in the arm of the authorities you 're not acting on your own individual basis. your emotions shouldn 't be there you, you there's no place for your own personal opinion you function under the arm of the state however you wear a second hat as a believer in christ that you need to honor christ above and beyond and so so this is a great tension that i think a lot of people in these roles have to wrestle through but i have to move on and i know you guys are saying well, well not isn't aren't there places where christians are supposed to push back if you scour the scriptures there are very few cases where the christian is called to push back it's overwhelming that the, the heart of submission is all through there. And their corruption of their government was so much worse. We live under a great government. And last night as I was going over this, Anna's like, well, I recognize that this is very hard for you to say, especially in the upcoming election. Like, I don't want to get too much into politics. But a lot of things that are in the news, like Benghazi, are not just... Just political things to me. Two guys that were killed in Benghazi were very good friends of mine, and I still come to this passage, recognize that if I want to worship God, I humble myself to the president, to the authorities that are placed over me. And in this next election, I realized that whoever is selected, there's going to be, I think, everybody sort of, we're all going to have to struggle. Um, It's not like there's really clear choice about who's really happy with who. But we as Christians are called to submit and to honor the authorities that are over us. And the reality is, is whoever is, we live under one of the greatest governments of, in human history. Our government is bent towards benevolence. We serve, and actually, a very compassionate government over its history. If, if you don't agree with me, I'd encourage you to buy your plane ticket to Kenya and go with me to Kenya in three weeks. I would love to take you to um, well I can't say Israel because Israel is a great nation, but I would be happy to travel with you to anywhere in the Middle East almost anywhere there's a, a, a I can take you to a lot of places to to increase your great appreciation and gratitude for the the government in which we live under I'll leave it at that, but the place of pushing back on the government and acts 529. This is one of the few places Peter's been under arrest, and they're telling him to stop doing what he's doing. And he basically says to them, you decide what's right, but as for me, I have to honor God. And I will say that historically, even when a person has been right in pushing back on the government, the consequences are severe. Peter pushed back rightfully so. He was killed. The many, many martyrs that pushed back so that we could have the scriptures in our hands to read by. They, they died at the stake and were burned alive, rightly so, but the consequences were overwhelming against them. The scripture makes it very clear we're to humble ourselves, we're to pray for our leaders so that we could live quiet and peaceful lives. Okay, so the two things I see from this passage. Give the, render the things to God that are God's and that's your life. The government has been ordained by God. We might not understand it, but you've got to deal with that. He tells us that if we want to honor him, if we want to give back to God, that means that God has delegated his authority to human authorities, which we might have a really hard time, but if we really ultimately want to worship him, we have to submit ourselves to the authorities that have been placed over us. And the final point that I see here is our lives as Christians are not compartmentalized. Like, it's not. If you have given your life to Christ, you've given everything to him. And that bleeds into how you pay your taxes? You know, in 1987, uh, Freakonomics talks about a tax reform that happened. The, the tax reform was catastrophic. I mean, the stock market crashed in 86. Some some implementations happened in the tax code. Um, it, it was overwhelming. Like, my, my dad was a tax guy during that time. I remember as a kid, like, he really shared some things about where he was in life because of the things that had changed during that window. But in Freakonomics, one of the things that changed is there was a man who I forget his name. He was trying to figure out that he was convinced that there was fraud amongst the American tax payers. And so what he suggested was, is that every dependent that you claim on your tax return, you have to have a social security number connected to that person. And apparently people were claiming, uh, Dependents named Fluffy and other things. And in that one year that they said if you claim a dependent, you have to provide a social security number. Guess how much money came in that year in excess? Three billion dollars. There was three billion dollars in tax fraud, and it makes me wonder how many Christians were a part of claiming Fluffy as dependent so that they could get a thousand dollars tax credit that year. There's no compartmentalizing that if Caesar says these are your taxes, pay your taxes we live in a government where we're encouraged to vote and without going into too much, like if you are able to vote in our nation and you're a Christian, you should vote. I'm not telling you how to vote, you should vote. We should obey the laws, obey the speed limit. Don't talk in your cell phone, don't text while you're driving. I'm just talking to myself, you know, like a, there's a whole bunch of things like not to do. Be respectful of the leaders that are over us. I see submission within marriage, both ways. Honor God in your marriage. Honor your parents as children. Honor your parents. This is, if you want to worship God, submit yourself to your parents. Submit yourself to your bosses. The Christian life is about making God's name pleasing. And our actions and how we live our lives, that affects his testimony. And so Jesus calls us to surrender to him the things that are his, and that's your all. And Father, I do thank you for this wonderful life that you've given each of us. Lord, it's so easy for us to complain and to bicker and to be disrespectful and unbending in our our relationships, to our authority, to how we speak. And so, Father, as we look at this passage about these poll taxes, and Lord, the most powerful thing I see in this is not about rendering to Caesar what's to Caesar's, but it's rendering to you what is yours. And everything I have is yours, my life, my soul. I thank you that you have paid the price for me to enter into this relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would um, change my spirit Lord help me and all of us to honor you with how we speak about our government how we treat one another how we handle our relationships we do pray for those who are in law enforcement and the military father as they function in this very precarious situation of having to be the arm of the government at the same time honoring you with their lives. I pray, Father, that you would give them wisdom and steadiness of character uh, in being able to honor you as they function in these roles. We give you thanks for the first responders uh, that are in our midst, that are in our communities, that provide to us this very wonderful life that we live in in the United States. And so, Father, we thank you. We give you praise. And it's in Christ's good name we pray, amen.